This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I'm up on one side's hate and one is hope. Yeah, tightening. We're certainly seeing a tighter monetary cycle when it comes to the U.S. Federal Reserve. And this on the backdrop of uh, economic news today that showed the U.S. economy grew in the fourth quarter at a faster pace than last estimated. That's backward looking, yes. So let's look forward. David Levy is back with us again, chairman at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. He joins us on the phone from Mount Kisco, New York. David, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Uh, you look at uh, monetary policy and the expectations that are out there. What do you forecast for the Fed in 2018? Well, I think we're right now in the in the midst of a uh, growth sta- scare uh, in the bond market and in the credit mar- fixed income markets, which uh, began as people started to see more signs of tight labor markets, more signs of, of uh, wage pressures. And uh, there's going to be more of that to come. I think the, the, the market has been uh, tending to expect less inflation than the Fed has talked about. And I think in this case, not only is the Fed right, I think the Fed may be surprised about uh, how the inflation data and, 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 in the, and inflation pressure data, in particular in the wage uh, setting, uh, come out in the next uh, couple of months. So, David, what does that mean in terms of what we might see for future rate increases by the Fed? I think I think we're going to uh, get onto a pace of faster increases, you know, at least the four, and, and they may start expecting more. Uh, I don't know that they'll necessarily get there by the end of the year because as rates go up and as ex, uh, the yield curve steepens, it's going to cause some fallout in financial markets that may then slow things down again. But I think if we're looking at the next uh, few months or through, let's say, through the next quarter, uh, I think we're going to see some very strong profits, stronger than the market's looking for, and uh, more, at the same time, more sense that the market's uh, uh, putting pressure on on wages and prices, so I, we think that that the the battle will be won between those two most likely by the strong profits, but um, you know looking down the road a little bit, um, it, 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 the outlook's a little bit messier. Hey David, um, you know the federal interest rate going up, going down is kind of art and science at the same time. Is there a tailwind coming from the tax? reform that came through at the beginning of the year? And would that affect whether we have three rate hikes this year or maybe four? Well, it certainly would push the four, and it will have have an effect. Uh, you know, essentially, we have a car that's going too fast as it heads to the cur- curve, and the Fed is trying to gently slow it down just enough. And uh, the, the uh, meanwhile, the government put some, uh, you know, afterburners tied onto the roof and set them <laughs> off. So it's, it's kind of hard to it, it basically uh, increase the... Uh, intensity of the collision that this can be had. Well, I want to follow up on what Jason said about, you know, what the Fed does in monetary policy. It's a little bit art. It's a little bit science. Yes, indeed. And historically, David, when we start to see the Fed raising rates, it's really tricky. And often we see the Fed maybe overdoing it and that cause a recession. Mm-hmm. Are you anticipating that? Well, I think I think that it's not even so much the Fed overdoing as the Fed being stuck in a place where it has to raise rates to the point where uh, we start to see financial issues breaking, financial problems breaking out, uh, and that is what's going to trigger the next 
set of the uh, you know major global recessions. Like what it, what in particular? Because I do think we do wonder well, you know not necessarily another financial crisis, but what is that next you know well, mini I, I black swan, it, if you will. Well, first let me say you know we think the U.S. economy is going to make it through the year without any recession because it's going to be very strong at the beginning, and even if if some parts of it, like housing are, are going to slow down. It's getting into this increasing spending as uh, the federal government gets up uh, to the new uh, discretionary spending caps and with the tax cut going through. So the U.S. Is gonna, economy is going to grow strongly through this year, we think. As we start looking ahead, and we might even see signs of that this year, in fact, I think we will, the rising interest rates are going to do damage to uh, financial markets, risk markets, not only here but around the world. And the two, I think, two red flags to watch for, one is in our own high-yield de- uh, corporate debt market, where spreads are ridiculously narrow because people have been so hungry to take a little more risk to get some yield. Uh, and the other is in the emerging markets, where, uh, and particularly looking at how the emerging market currencies do against the dollar. They've been doing very well as people just rush over to grab that extra yield. But at some point, that process reverses, and rising U.S. interest rates is, is a potential catalyst. Well, we've been living in this extraordinary time now for 10 years with the rates so low. So three or four hikes, is that enough dry powder for the Fed to put back in, in the arsenal in case there is a recession going into next year? Well, and the, when there's a recession, this year? Yeah, when, uh, Jason, when there is a recession, the Fed's going to run out of, of, of bullets. They ran out of bullets last time. Uh, they got it raised down to zero, and, and they still had a terrible recession. Fortunately, we had some fiscal stimulus, and, and the Fed you know, did, uh, did some very important lender of last resort uh, maneuvers. But, uh, you know, it took a long time to get the economy uh, fixed. We, you know, they, they would have used more bullets if they had them. This time we'll be starting from a lower point, and uh, balance sheets relative to income are even bigger than they were back then. So I think it's, it's going to be, uh, again, we'll, we'll have a, a difficult time once we get in trouble. Let's stay right there for a second, because you mentioned the balance sheet, and I wanted to get to that eventually. Uh, what is the status right now of the Fed, and how will that unwind? Um, well, uh, you talk about the Fed balance sheet? Yeah, the Fed balance sheet. Yeah, uh, yeah I, was, I was referring just now to the private sector balance sheet, which I see. is much more concerned to me. But so as the Fed, I, I think the Fed is, is you know, uh, when times are good, they can start to, as we've seen, uh, try to bring the balance sheet their own balance sheet down to size a little bit, but I don't, I don't think it's either terribly important or will, will they get very far before, you know, sometime in the next couple of years they have to uh, forget about that and go in the other direction. David Levy, quickly, 20 seconds. You mentioned the consumer balance sheet. It's gotten too high in your view? Just quickly. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's if you look at the wealth of the household sector yeah. relative to the GDP of the economy, it's even it's, it's set a new record. Uh, it's uh, even above where it was in the housing uh, uh, peak, and what that's saying is, is there's a lot of room for assets. A lot, a lot of in, uh, assets are not so much income. A lot of room for asset values to fall. Always good to get some time with you, David. Be well, David Levy. He's chairman of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. David joining us on the phone from Mount Kisco, New York. I'm Carol Master, along with Jason Middleton, and you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm thinking Tesla will be happy um, when Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe even Thursday are over because the stock's been uh, under some pressure, slipping another 7% in today's session after more than 8% drop yesterday. Here to talk about the latest investor worries, especially when it comes to fixed income investors. Uh, Bloomberg Gatfly is our fast commentary section. Liam Denning is energy mining and commodities columnist with the group, and he's with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Nice to have you here. Hello. So what are you watching when it comes to Tesla? 
Um, well, the stock price, obviously. But um, the thing I've been keeping an eye on actually is the price of their bonds. Uh, you may remember they they did this uh, huge $1.8 billion bond issue last August, um, priced at a premium to the market. And uh, I've been watching that for signs of confidence cracking because we tend to watch the stock price, mm -hmm. obviously, and Tesla is a cult stock. A lot, a lot of the valuation rests on confidence in the CEO Elon Musk and this long-term vision. Um, bond, bond holders, we tend to think of them as being a, a little more skeptical, uh, although in Tesla's case, for much of the past six months, they haven't been, but all of a sudden, all, sorry, all of a sudden they seem to be. Hey, Liam, I was reading your column, and there's a lyric from a soul coughing song that kept coming into my head, which was, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That was unintentional. My, well, no, it was, it's a great song. It was a great column. But I, the, with external capital being their main funding source, doesn't a lower share price kind of feed that cycle? Yeah, so it, it's the flip side of being a cult stock. So when you're a cult stock and everyone's confident, uh, the sky's the limit, right? Because you can... Uh, you can run your business depending on external capital and it will always be there. The downside is if for whatever reason that confidence dissipates, it can get into a vicious cycle because all of a sudden everyone becomes very aware of your funding needs, but your stock price is going down, your bonds have been derated, and all of a sudden uh, your funding options start to look very limited. Work us through some of the financials when you look at um, their debt, their bonds in particular. I mean, how troublesome is their financial picture? Tesla operates uh, really kind of at the edge of things in terms of finance. I mean, it's, it's, uh, its net debt doubled last year, partly as a result of its SolarCity deal. Mm -hmm. um, in the fourth quarter, its interest charges alone added up to a third of its gross profit margin. What a lot of this comes back to is Tesla has gone out and financed itself for a massive expansion. Um, the key element of that expansion is producing the Model 3, which is their new vehicle. It's supposed to be the mass market, although some will debate that because once you start throwing on all of the options, it's not so mass market necessarily. Sure. I tend to think of it as a sort of mass affluent market. It's, it's a step <laughs> well below said. the Model S. Um, but in any case, they need to get production of that up to several hundred thousand or a million a year. When Moody's rated their bonds last August, they were assuming Tesla would produce around 300,000 Model 3s this year. The current consensus estimate is about 150,000. I would say that's even looking a little optimistic right now. Hey, hey Liam, Elon Musk has said several times that he'd rather be optimistic and wrong than pessimistic and right when it comes to his delivery and his expectations. And I'm wondering... Well, of course that, he would. <laughs> well, he's been saying that a long time. And I'm wondering, you mentioned a cult stock. I mean, is some of the bloom coming off the rose now with investors? Um, I mean, it seems to be. You, you never really know uh, what's going to be uh, a lasting impact here because we've seen sell-offs in the past, maybe not as severe and certainly not with this bond indicator out there. But for example, next week, Tesla will report first quarter sales for the Model 3. I'm pretty convinced they're not going to get anywhere near the two and a half thousand a week target that they mm -hmm. talked about and which has been downgraded already. However, if they were to say, you know, hey, we're, uh, we're not two and a half thousand, but production's going up, could they convince enough people to come back in? It's a possibility. I have to say, though, with this with this blowout in the bond spreads, uh, it does look like there's a lot more skepticism than usual out there. Liam, when do we get those numbers? 
Um, it should be early next week. Early next week. You know, I just go back to, you know, this is a, what, $43 billion market cap company. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 65. It was 65, right. Uh, we're taking a look at, what, 2017 revenues of almost $12 billion and more than $10 billion of debt. I mean, unless they start to ramp up considerably, right, in terms of revenues, it, it's the math is just not great. Right. They have to grow into these growth targets. A lot of the money has already been spent. They are using all sorts of financing, whether it be bonds. Uh, they've used lots of equity issues in the past. They have a huge negative working capital number. Right. Um, so it, it really is dependent on getting that Model 3 production going. Just quickly, just got about 25 seconds here. So for investors who, yep, we do focus so much on the stock, but watching uh, the Tesla bonds, what should we be watching out for over the next couple of weeks? Um, I would keep an eye on those bond spreads. Uh, the bonds got downgraded from uh, B3 to, uh, to CAA. Uh, they're yielding right now about uh, 75 to 8%, but triple C debt usually trades somewhere in the 11% range, so they could have a long way to go yet. All right, certainly something I know you'll be watching as we will as well. Liam, thank you. Great thank column. You. Liam Denning, he's energy mining and commodities columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section. Check him out on Twitter at Liam Denning. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets, Carol Masser, along with Jason Middleton, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Yep, that's what we're doing right now. We're hitching a ride thanks to the New York International Auto Show, which is underway at the Javits Center here in New York City. And yes, you'll see the latest and greatest vehicles from automakers. You'll also get an update on the world of ride sharing. Let's bring in Maven's New York General Manager, joining myself and Jason Middleton on this Wednesday. He is Maven's New York General Manager, is Brent Taylor. He joins us on the phone from the Auto Show at the Javits. Brent, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. And again, this is a, a, a service that was launched by General Motors back in January of 2016. Yes. Uh, uh, first off, let me thank you both, uh, Carol and Jason, for having me on the program. And uh, yes, Maven has been uh, a GM brand for the past two years now. We are GM's personal mobility brand. Um, we're an app-based car share and ride share uh, platform, which allows uh, our customers to seamlessly connect to vehicles, whether they be for uh, on-demand car sharing or whether our customers are ride share operators who need a vehicle to conduct their business through our Maven gig platform. Um, we have a uh, all of our programs products are app-based, so we urge customers to go through Maven car sharing on at either the App Store or the Android Store and download our app, which is free of charge, and uh, they have a mobility tool in their pocket, uh, whether they use it that week or that year. Um, it doesn't cost them anything to sign up or uh, to uh, the only charges to actually use the service. Wait, so, okay, so you're different from Uber, right? You're different from Lyft, or how are you different from them? Absolutely. We're, uh, we're complimentary to them. So we have two programs. Uh, first is our Maven City program, which we operate here in New York City, uh, and that is station-based car sharing. So you, uh, you'd like to reserve a car for an hour or a day or a week, uh, you can go to your Maven app on your phone and uh, pick out a car at the closest garage to you go to that car and uh, take it out for whatever you need to do. Go uh, pick up your folks at LaGuardia or go to the Costco or go to East Hampton. And uh, then you return the car. You, uh, you control the whole process through an app. And uh, we only charge you for the amount of time that you were in the car. 
We also have our Maven gig platform, which is renting cars out to rideshare drivers. So if you'd like to uh, uh, try out being a Uber or Lyft driver, you can access that through being a Maven uh, customer, getting a vehicle that is properly registered to uh, participate in those services. And uh, you can uh, basically dip your toes into that water without the upfront capital costs of buying a vehicle and registering it and insuring it. So uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have a rideshare service. We just provide the vehicle mm. for the, uh, the driver to operate their service. You know, Brent, I think you've put on 75 million road miles since I had Maven on my other show a little bit ago. Congratulations on that. Maven City, of course, we broadcast right now in, in very dense urban population areas. Very interesting right there. Uh, I'm also wondering how did Maven gig go? You were able to get it out the door before South by Southwest, which luckily I didn't have to go to this year, but South by Southwest and Maven gig, how was the, uh, the acceptance level there? Uh, well, that uh, is the Austin program, which was our most recent launch. Again, I'm the, the general manager over in New York City, but uh, the Maven gig program in Austin is actually really exciting. That features uh, 20 vehicles in a pilot program. Uh, in conjunction with the city of Austin, but these are all fully plug-in uh, electric Chevrolet Bolt EVs. Um, and uh, so we're giving a, an actual gig offering within Austin, and, uh, and it's a zero-emission program, which works towards GM's zero-zero-zero uh, goal. And, uh, you know, just to uh, expand a little on your miles-driven, uh, just in New York City alone, we launched our market here back in May uh, 15th of 2017, um, and so far, our New York City drivers have logged uh, 850,000 miles on Maven vehicles. Um, in New York alone, uh, countrywide, we've done uh, about 258 million miles on Maven vehicles, and uh, 8.2 of those have been purely electric miles, so zero emission miles uh, through our, our Chevrolet Bolt program, which we're really excited about. So we look forward to continuing the program, uh, certainly growing it in Austin. Uh, the user adoption has been uh, extremely positive. We've, uh, we've run a program similar to that out of San Francisco for quite some time. And uh, the demand has been uh, so, just overwhelming for us in a great way. Brent, I know. Consumers love this kind of stuff. I'm one of those consumers, right? It makes my life easier. Um, but what I'm curious about is, first of all, how sticky is the service? If you get a customer, how often do they do repeat business? Can you hold on to them? And I'm curious, are you guys making money doing this? Well, that's the key is uh, once, once we get you in the door, you're hooked with Maven. And, uh, the, so you you're know, saying once you get a customer, they stay with you and you find them what using your service once a month, twice a month, once a week? It just varies. You know, in New York, we'll go to, we have a couple of people that use the, the car every other day. Um, you know, certainly companies that are billing for their miles, uh, Maven is a great solution for them. Uh, as well as, you know, people doing runs to the box stores. Uh, if you think about it, you know, if you have uh, your parents coming in uh, at LaGuardia Airport, um, it's almost 50-something dollars to get them to Manhattan in a yellow cab, and you've got to, to corral that whole process and, and walk them through it, whereas they could get a Maven for two hours, and uh, that's around $30, and pick them up in a car that's, that's fully appointed. So wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, wait so, so, are you, so do you find those repeat customers are using you a lot more then? 
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, really what differentiates in this, us in the space and what I think uh, is responsible for that repeat business from those customers that, that uh, adopted us early is that um, the uh, being we're part of GM, we control the vehicle fleet. So whether you take the smallest car in the fleet, the most economical, the Chevy Cruze, say, or the Cadillac Escalade, which is the the, 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 you know, the highest trim level, uh, all the vehicles feature a premium trim. So whether you're in the small car or the big car, you're still getting the leather seats, you're getting the 4G Wi-Fi connectivity, you're getting XM satellite radio and OnStar. So uh, we don't shame anybody for, for taking the, uh, uh, the, the most economical option. And also, uh, it's a great way to uh, introduce people to the, new, uh, the General Motors line. All right, we got to run. Brent, thank you so much. Brent Taylor, he is the New York General Manager at Maven, joining us uh, on the phone from New York International Auto Show at the Javits Center in New York City. I'm Carol Master, along with Jason Middleton, right here on Bloomberg Radio. War, trade war specifically, what does it mean for the currency markets? I want to talk about that with Mark Chandler. He is joining myself and Jason Middleton. Mark, by the way, global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. Mark joining us on the phone in New York. Mark, trade war, dollar, what does it potentially mean? Well, first, I'd say that trade war talk seems to me to be like way over the top. I'm not sure why we insist on militarizing uh, and weaponizing these things. You know, we talk about currency wars for several years; they don't materialize. Trade war, it seems to me, takes more than simple U.S. provocation. A lot of what Trump is doing, a lot of what the U.S. policymakers are doing now, is a lot like what Reagan did against Japan. And so I think a trade war misunderstands what's really going on. I think the U.S. is 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 provoking, but the response has been very mute. The U.S. puts 60 tariffs on $60 billion of Chinese goods. They, what do they do? $3 billion worth of U.S. goods. This is not a trade war. And I think there's other forces driving the dollar, like rising LIBOR, widening interest rate differentials. And so the dollar is getting a very strong here at the end of the month. Mark, I have a, just a, a little bit of a different take on this, only because if you look back at history, and I, I like to do that for context, it seems that protectionism is always a net negative for the economy. And we don't have to go too far back. I'm not going to take you to 1930 when tariffs were up to 50 percent on imports, but we can go back to 2002 with the George W. Bush steel tariff. That turned out to be a, a, net, pos a net negative, too, for the overall economy, costing 200,000 jobs by some estimates. So how does that differ from now? What kind of lessons can we glean from that pushback in 2002? Well, yeah, sure. I fully agree that protectionism is not good. I tend to be, a, even though I tend to be left politically, I tend to be in favor of free trade. And I think the role of government is helping to make, I mean, helping to make, there's winners and losers, and the role of government is to help compensate the losers. But I think that the difference now is that, and why I'm not so negative on the economy, you know, we're gonna, we've got this curse of weak Q1 growth. And this looks like another quarter, another time we have a weak Q1 growth. But we've got, we've got more fiscal stimulus that so many people opposed in 2008, 2009, we've got more right now, while the U.S. economy is still growing, probably above trend. If you think that trend growth is about 1.8 to 2 percent in the U.S. economy, we're probably still growing above trend. And we've got this big fiscal stimulus. So, that, so the modest 
and I do say modest protectionism because remember, I would say that Bush's, uh, the uh, Trump's policy is very much in the art of the negotiations, the art of the deal, which is a lot of bluster. Mm-hmm. You make big claims and you back down, and that's what mm-hmm. we're doing. The tariffs aren't nearly as onerous as it seems. Mexico, Canada have been have been uh, exempted. South Korea now is exempt. Australia is exempt. The EU and several other countries are exempt for several more weeks while they negotiate. This is what this is about. It's not a trade war. This is, you know, the U.S. and Canada among the two biggest trading partners in the world. And there's always little frictions, which is why we WTO so often with them. So, so okay, let's whittle this down, though, to what it means potentially when it comes to the foreign exchange market, the dollar specifically. The dollar index, if I take a look at that, down about 5% since uh, the high back in early uh, November. There's been stories out there, Mark. I'm sure you've read them on the Bloomberg and, and elsewhere. talks about the policy for the euro maybe to step into the spot as the currency of choice among global central banks for reserves. Um, Who knows? We've heard this talk before and it really hasn't happened. What's the outlook six to 12 months for the U.S. currency? Well, so uh, two things I think you're talking about. One is currency as a reserve managers. And it seems to me that that article you point out, that was on the Bloomberg terminal, about uh, the possibility of central bank switching. It's I think you quote uh, two analysts there, and one had written a book previously that talked about how the euro was going to collapse. And so I think that to recognize that central banks move at glacial speeds when they change reserves. But as far as the market goes, I think that what, we, what we're wrestling with is what, what is going to be the drivers for the dollar going forward. So far, and for the last 15 months or so, it has not been interest rate differentials. Many so people you're... now seem to be focused on twin deficits on the U.S. budget deficit and the current account deficit, which tends not to be good for the dollar. Real quick, Mark, a question about the euro, because it's at the highest level against the dollar since, at or near the highest level, since about mid-February. So what's been the push there uh, as far as the forex goes? Yeah, so I think that part of the push is that uh, it's sort of like short and medium-term traders, momentum traders, trend followers ignoring the interest rate differentials, because they've got the momentum at their backs, and I think what they're focusing on is this negativity. You think the protectionism, as you recall from in the, from Reagan, was also dollar negative. 1980, the, the Plaza Agreement in 1985 to drive the dollar down. I think people are concerned about these kinds of issues, but I'm not convinced it's going to last much longer. For me, the key level of the euro, 126, 127, we go above that, and I think it's a much bigger case for the end of this big dollar rally we've had since 2014. Got a favorite currency, uh, Mark? Just got about 20 seconds here. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, in the short run, I'd watch Sterling. Mm-hmm. I think a lot, of pe- a, lot, a lot of the Brexit news has actually been turning a little bit more positive. They're, they're likely to be the next major central bank to raise interest rates, and that's probably in May. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Mark, thank you. Mark Chandler, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, on the phone in New York City, talking about uh, trade, the impact, or lack thereof, potentially, when it comes to the currency market. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Wednesday afternoon. I'm Carol Master, along with Jason Middleton, and we are Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is... 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for the drive to the close. Walter Todd is chief investment officer at Greenwood Capital Associates on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. And he says tech is an interesting spot. So let's start there. Uh, Walter, what do you mean? Well, Carol, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I think tech's it, the tech sector is at kind of a, a critical juncture here. You know, it's been leadership for really the past 12 plus months in the market. And, you know, there's the potential that we have here that that, that leadership is going to be changing. And so I think that's what the market overall is struggling with, um, as we've seen the loss of leadership in tech. So we would just, we would definitely have exposure there, but we would just be a little bit careful about, you know, piling in on this on this pullback because I I do think there's the potential that you might see uh, money when the market does rebound shift into uh, other areas of the market. At least that's our our bet right now. Hey Walter, let's stay in the tech sector for a second. Let's talk about Amazon. Right, down four percent today. When Amazon points its Death Star at any other sector, it rattles that sector. Um, and let's talk about retail. Is Amazon's effect having anything to do in the retail sector? Have you seen anything moving in response to the negative news coming on our Seattle friends? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You've actually seen some of those down-and-out retailers like Macy's, um, Nordstrom, um, some other mall retailers actually do pretty well this year. I know Amazon's still up nicely for the year, even with the pullback in the last few days. Um, but again, it, it, you seem to be maybe seeing a, a changing of the tide a little bit with the fallout from this this tech uh, pullback. It started with Facebook; it spread out beyond that. So, I, for us, we don't own Amazon, never have, probably never will, just because of the valuation. Um, I do think there's opportunities outside of these traditional. You know, momentum growth stocks that everybody's talked about. You mentioned the ETF coming into the the segment here that's done so well, and that's that's part of the problem is that the market's been very concentrated in a few momentum names, and that's starting to change. Well, that's what I'm curious about. I mean, in terms of the tech, is it you know the, that loss of leadership that you talk about valuation concerns, or is it fundamental problems with these big tech names? Well, for some of the names, it's valuation, right? I mean, at least for us. I mean, with Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, those type of names, you know, valuations that are hard to understand at times. Um, with others, um, you know, valuations are more reasonable. You know, Microsoft is one that we own, for example. Um, so I think it's a – depending on the names you're looking at, it's a combination of factors. And really, uh, the fact that it's a very crowded trade at this point. So some of it's just sentiment and, and over-bullishness on a particular sector. And the combination of that with the loss in kind of economic momentum we've seen in some of the statistics here recently, along with the trade talk, is really, I think, what the market overall is struggling with. I know we're, you know, tech's been the worst performing over the past week or so, but it's really the combination of factors of losing tech leadership and then softer economic data, trade talks, the circuits in Washington, et cetera, that are kind of coming together in this perfect storm for the overall market to, to come down. So the trading range today and all this week really has been pretty wide. Um, so the Dow trading in almost a 400-point range during the day. Is that volatility the new normal, or are we returning to the volatility we should have been used to before the Great Recession? Yeah, I think you're, I think it's the latter. I mean, uh, you know, last year was really the exception, 2017, where we had 3% of the days in the S&P that traded in a 1% range. Uh, this year, I think over half the days have traded in a 1% range. So that's maybe a little bit above normal, but really not, not that much. So mm -hmm. I think we're back to normal. I just think you know, investors kind of got lulled to in a sense of complacency after the, the, the calm last year. 
You know, this is such a funny market cycle, and it's such a long one. And I know it's not going to be like a date on the calendar, Walter, where all of a sudden, okay, you know, the run-up in stocks, it's over for a while. What it, What are the key metrics that you're keeping an eye on to say, okay, we are going to see a pullback, a significant pullback, and it might be that way for a while? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, we're down almost 10% from the highs earlier this year. This is you know, the second kind of correction that we've seen after early February. And and for us, you kind of go back to that earlier comment about you know we're kind of at a at a crossroads in the market. So either either one, you believe that you know economic growth is going to reaccelerate as we exit the first quarter, and therefore you know the market has more legs and this this whole cycle has more legs, or you believe, as you said, that that is the you know that is the end and 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 the the bull market is is potentially over. So your positioning, depending on your outlook for for one or the other, is going to be quite different. So today, for example, you've seen the defensive areas of the market do quite well, really done well over the past week to two weeks. So if you think we're we're done, you want to you want to keep moving into those areas. But if you think like we do that that growth is going to accelerate, you want to be buying the pullback in financials in industrials, uh, in materials that we're seeing right now as the market is questioning uh, the growth outlook. When you mentioned positioning right there, just in, in writ large, is that why in the last hour of trading for the last couple of weeks we've seen a lot more volatility come around because people are positioning for the next day, digesting the day's news? Yeah, well, I think the market, I mean, to your point, I think the market is very short-term oriented, kind of day-to-day -day <laughs> at this point. So, And that's really the, the function of the absence of, of real fundamental news, right? I mean, we're out of earnings season. We'll pick that back up in a couple of weeks. And so we're kind of looking for the story of the day. And, and unfortunately, the story of the day has not been very um, very positive, depending on the day that you're looking at, well, whether it's something going on in Washington, et cetera. It's, it's funny that you brought up earnings, because I was thinking about that, too, right? It's always funny right now when we're in between earnings cycles, because we're not hearing from CEOs, we're not hearing about capital expenditures, we're not hearing about outlooks, and so on and so forth. If we go get to the next earnings season and people are upbeat and CEOs are upbeat, the market conversation then will change again, Walter? Got about 25 seconds. Yeah, I think it should. I mean, witness that we just got earnings from FedEx, you know, a week, mm -hmm. week or so ago that were great. Right. <laughs> and, the, and it was a very upbeat call, but yet the market sentiment's kind of overwhelming that positive news. But I think when we get more of that in a couple of weeks, that should change the tone of the market. All right. As always, like to check in with you. Walter Todd joining us on this Wednesday. He is Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates, joining us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets right here on Bloomberg Radio. We've got the S&P down about four points, Dow Jones Industrial Average, a gain of about 20, and the NASDAQ uh, lower by about 50 points. I'm Carol Master along with Jason Middleton, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.